Hello, everyone, and welcome to Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Rebecca Mashal. I'm here today with Dr. Marla Dubinsky, Division Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition and Co-Director of the Susan and Leonard Feinstein IBD Clinical Center at the Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai, New York. Dr. Dubinsky and colleagues recently published a review in the journal Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology entitled, How, When, and For Whom Should We Perform Therapeutic Drug Monitoring?, which she's going to discuss with us today, particularly in regard to the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Dubinsky. In your article, you mentioned that reactive therapeutic drug monitoring, or TDM, particularly for anti-TNF antibodies, is widely accepted, but that the data are more scarce for other classes of monoclonal antibodies. Why is this the case? A good question is, why do we have so much more data on uh, understanding the pharmacology and pharmacokinetics of anti-TNFs versus some of our newer biologics is really due to time. You know, we have been using, for example, infliximab um, over 20 years now and adalimumab uh, heading into 13 years. So we, we've just had more data. We understand how these therapies work. We, we now have luxury of time. People have been investigating the role of drug concentrations dating back to 2006 or maybe even before that. Um, I think that we just know more because we've had more experience with them. Now, the idea of understanding the pharmacokinetics of the newer biologics such as the uh, IL-1223 target or the uh, integrin of bevilizumab, there's a couple of important differences. Um, one of them is we don't really have a lot of dose escalation or dose adjustment opportunity. We can change the frequency of vetalizumab to every four weeks, for example, or we can, in theory, change the uh, frequency of the injections for ustekinumab more frequently. But we just don't have as much flexibility in dosing like we do with infliximab because we sort of know that we can play around a lot with the dosing as well as the frequency. So when fixed dosing, which is what we're seeing with our newer biologics, but also applies to adalimumab, where you're really only able to go from one pen every other week, for example, to one pen every week, it's not as flexible a dosing. So I think for us choosing infliximab, working with experts in the field of pharmacokinetics and using dose dosing calculators to help us improve the precision of our dosing, um, infliximab is a great place to start. What challenges do practitioners face in implementing proactive TDM to help prevent loss of response in patients with IBD? How difficult is it to maintain the tight control that is the goal of IBD care? If you go back to the sort of the history of uh, therapeutic drug monitoring, it really started um, in a reactive approach, meaning we understood that when a patient wasn't feeling well and we wanted to see if the reason for why they weren't doing well on infliximab was driven by perhaps just they didn't have enough drug uh, in the tank, so to say, um, that led us to say, all right, well, when a patient is not well, let's reactively check a drug concentration confirm that the patient, one, has enough drug and should be responding, and therefore we would classify them as failing, 
and maybe switch to something else? Or two, do they have antibodies already developed against the drug and that's why they've lost response? So we call that secondary loss of response, for example. Or three, probably the most common, is the fact that the patient just doesn't have enough drug. And we've learned quickly that dose adjustment based on clinical intuition alone when a patient just has symptoms may not always be the right option because people may be active because they've already developed antibodies to infliximab because they've had a prolonged course of underdosing or undertreatment or low drug concentration. The body finally just said, you know, I needed more of the drug or I needed it more frequently. And this sort of every eight week regimen of the starting dose of five milligrams per kilogram doesn't work for me and my body. And so we were really missing an opportunity to sort of personalize that approach. And we were waiting for people to reactively fail. Well, that doesn't work in IBD because our whole point is to keep people always feeling well and being ahead of the flare. So the idea that we started getting data to say that if you get a drug concentration of X and you change the dose or the frequency in order to get a drug concentration of Y, and we know that when a patient has that higher drug concentration, they do better, wouldn't it be amazing if you get a low drug concentration while the patient is not expressing any symptoms to actively, proactively optimize the dose based on the target concentration so that you avoid a flare? And that's that proactive mindset that there's no doubt where we have moved into and we should be all residing in a place where we definitely should be proactively um, finding things out in advance of the patient getting sick. I mean, that's what they come to us for. They want to make sure that we have all the pieces of information we can to keep them well durably. And we know that if you could proactively obtain a stool marker like a fecal calprotectin or a CRP for disease activity and a drug concentration in advance of any patient developing symptoms and proactively doing something about it, you're going to have better outcomes. So the premise for our study was not only checking drug levels early, which I should point out using this um, pharmacokinetic dashboard and this dose calculator, it wasn't just checking patients early, it was checking patients really early, meaning during the induction phase. So this study has a number of key components of our hypotheses or key components of clinical practice that we needed to address. One is, should we be checking drug levels earlier than by the time they're in maintenance, even proactively, meaning you could proactively check a drug level in someone who's been on the drug for five years, sure, and maybe make a dose change. But imagine being able to actually make these dose changes when a patient is just starting on the drug, when their disease is most active and they need the most drug. I mean, that's sort of addressing proactive, but we're going to add the term early proactive. So we added that layer of early, meaning an induction, starting at infusion two. And then we said, it's not good enough just to get a drug concentration because drug concentrations alone don't necessarily tell you the whole story. And what these dashboards allow you to do is integrate not only the drug concentrations of that individual patient, but all of the factors that influence the clearance of these drugs, meaning the influence the drug concentration. So if you could precisely dial in a dose and frequency 
specific to that individual's patient's clearance or the way that they their body manages these these therapies, specifically anti-TNF, you're not only proactively optimizing, but you're proactively optimizing based on the needs of the individual patient, which has not been done before. So I think the study allows us to get into multiple layers of where we need to change our paradigms when it comes to biologics, particularly in Fliximab. Can you give us an overview of the different types of assays to monitor drug concentrations and anti-drug antibodies that you reviewed in your research? We only used one type of assay because um, at Mount Sinai, we use the Prometheus uh, mobility shift assay for both our standard of care and in the uh, research setting. So we were dealing with the assay that allows you to accurately detect anti-drug antibodies, even when drug is present. You know, the bigger issues of some of these non, shall I say, drug-tolerant assays is that you can't really tell if it's drug or antibody that the assay is picking up. And if there's measurable drug, they don't even comment on the um, level of anti-drug antibody titer levels. So what this allowed us to do is that even though there was plenty of drug around, we did have some patients who started to have low levels of anti-drug antibodies that we, that actually goes into the model. So the model based on a drug concentration alone may not have access, access to escalate drugs, but because there was antibody even low level, it allowed us to overcome those anti-drug antibodies. That's a unique feature as well is that, you know, it's usually one or the other. Does the patient have antibodies or does the patient have enough drug or neither of, you know, both are missing or both are, are there. The both there are a small group of our patients, but I think in the induction phase, that is an important subgroup because normally if we would just have drug level information, we may have left the patient without any adjustment. But having a knowledge that you can input the presence or absence of a drug anti-drug antibody early on in the, in the dashboard allows us to make some dosing changes that we otherwise would have not done. So I think the the secret sauce, so to say, is that if you take a table or a list of anything that impacts drug concentrations and anti-drug antibodies, they're accounted for in the model. And if we hadn't used, in this particular, I can only speak to my research uh, and, and my study here, is had we not used the mobility shift assay, we would have missed the presence of even low levels of anti-drug antibodies, which did play a role in driving the dosing. You also looked at algorithmic approaches to TDM. What did you discover in that area of study? Well, I mean, overall, um, just to sort of highlight the design of the study. So any patient who entered uh, standard of care infusions for infliximab to our infusion unit were eligible for enrollment. So this was part of standard and care. We offer this precision dosing um, dashboard that will help direct the physician and you in knowing when your next dose needs to be. I mean, that's sort of what it would be if we integrate into clinical practice tomorrow. And what it was is that the starting dose was decided by the physician themselves. The study team was not deciding what dose a patient should start on. That was entirely up to the treating physician, which is how it would be in clinical practice as well. We tried to make this as real world as possible. And then what happens is the patient gets their first dose. And then at the time of the second infusion, which is usually two weeks after the first infusion, which is the patient's week. We studied, they had to have a week zero and a week two to be eligible. If they received their second infusion, anything before 
week two, that sort of biased the model and, you know, patients would have, were not included. So there were plenty of patients who got the second dose earlier, but they were excluded from this particular uh, analysis. And at the second infusion, before the patient gets their drug, they actually get a drug concentration and anti-drug antibody uh, collected along with standard of care labs, such as CRP and albumin and a weight and um, the disease activity index. And that all went into the, into the machine, <laughs> sort of the model, the, the software. And that software told us when the patient should come back for their third infusion. And not surprisingly, that a large proportion of patients who started on the five milligram per kilogram dosing, which is the standard of care approved dose, that many of them needed to come in earlier than the standard four-week interval between the second and third infusion and had to actually come in instead of 28 days, they had to come in at 17 days. So essentially, two weeks after the second infusion, which is almost half of the length of time that is in the label, right? That standard of care dictates that you come in four weeks after your second. So the idea that we had a whole bunch of patients that needed to come in for the third infusion earlier, so they were forecasted, we picked up the phone, we called the patient, we organized with the infusion unit that the patient needs their third infusion earlier than what the standard of care on-label dosing shows. Fine. They came in for their third. Again, at the third infusion, they had a drug concentration, anti-drug antibodies, CRP, albumin, weight, disease activity, dosing goes into the model and the software recalculates based on the drug concentration that they achieved at their at their third infusion when they should come in for their fourth. Now what I'll tell you is that our target concentrations which we use to predict when patients should come in is based on uh, lots of data in the literature. So it has been shown that we should try for a goal of a level of at least 17 at the third infusion. So if the idea that most patients were, aren't going to get a level of 17 at the third infusion, that's what drove the model to say come in earlier. Now, similarly, for the fourth infusion, it's usually an eight-week period between the third and the fourth infusion. And what we targeted is we wanted a drug concentration of 10. So the beauty about the software and the, and the model is you could toggle your way and choose any trough that you want to. And based on what your target trough concentration, meaning pre-dose concentration you want for that patient, the model will thereafter tell you, well, if you want a concentration of 10, based on literature that is, is very valid literature on why a level of 10, for example, is that it'll tell you when the patient will hit a level of 10. It shows you when the patient will go below a level of 10. So you want to catch the patient when their drug concentration before their fourth infusion would be 10. And the fact, and it shouldn't shock anyone who's listening to our discussion, that 80% of patients who started on five milligram per kilogram, meaning the on-label dose of infliximab, 80%, that's eight out of 10 patients, were forecasted to need a regimen that is different than what the label says. And moreover, <laughs> Even patients who we doubled the dose on the first infusion, like we started at 10 milligram per kilogram, six out of 10 needed a different frequency by the time their fourth infusion hit. So the fact that we underdose uh, 70 or so percent of our patients in induction when the patients most need the right drug dose because that's when their burden of inflammation is, is highest, it's backwards. 
So this idea of this step up versus top down that a lot of people use these terms uh, when it came to which class you choose, I think we need to recoin the term to say top down is where you start with the right dose for the patient's individual burden of disease and their own personal characteristics, and then you de-escalate. You can then step down to dosing that is lower and less often because the patient is now in remission. So what we were reactively doing is dose escalating once the patient is flaring. The idea of proactive optimization and doing this higher dosing when the patient most needs it will prevent loss of response, will prevent the development of anti-drug antibodies, and will increase the durability of these drugs well beyond what any clinical trial has ever shown. Because you're precisely dosing anti-TNF, specifically infliximab, for the individual patient's own needs. What additional research needs to be done to further explore this topic? Well, you know, I'm biased. I don't think you need much else. I mean, you know, we have 180 patients along with previous studies that have shown that my clinic, I thought I was pretty good at managing these patients historically. And how it almost all started is I sent my clinical decision making to Diane Mould, who's actually the um, sort of the inventor of this of this software program called IDOS actually is the is the name. And I said to her, tell me, in these patients that got anti-drug antibodies, if I had used your software, would your software have told me to dose adjust these patients before they got the anti-drug antibodies? And the answer is of course it would have, because it knew that the patient's drug concentrations were already too low. So I waited for the patient to flare. And look what happened. The patient flared, but they already had anti-drug antibodies. And I, had I just used the software, and again, I'm, I'm pretty good at understanding how to dose infliximab, and this, is, this totally made my clinical acuity uh, look subpar. So after that, it was like, for me, I almost feel guilty not using the software. You know, if I have a really sick patient, um, I sort of in my head have become my own software. I'm like, okay, I know if they have this lab, this concentration, they should come in you know, at this, at this time frame, and I sort of do my calculator in my brain now when people ask me, hey, I saw you present that data, what should be the regimen for this patient? They have this CRP, this element. So I become my own uh, calculator in my brain because you've seen now, you know, I don't know, 10 predictions per, for 180 patients. You start to see thousands or plus of predictions. You start to understand the needs of patients. So I think if someone would have to be a hard scientist, I believe in the importance of, of confirming and validating any findings in a one-arm sort of open label type fashion is the nail, you know, to seal the coffin on the idea of getting rid of reactive would be to randomize patients to what we're doing, reactive sort of standard of care, dosing and TDM versus a proactive optimization early in induction with the software. So sort of go against what we just found in the 180 patients. But I will tell you that those of us who have been proactive and who know this data inside and out, it's almost like, although I respect the idea of needing to, you know, prove it, once you've lived it and sort of feel it, and know and understand it, you almost feel like, why do I need to do that again? <laughs> you know, in that sense. But I understand the importance of the rigor and I'm very um, conscious of the need to always validate findings. But one thing that's interesting is the group in Amsterdam looked at this 
using this model in maintenance. So they had a, they didn't optimize it in inductions. That's why we focused on the induction piece here is they did it in maintenance and they showed very similar findings that the ability to stay on drug is far better when you use personalized dosing as opposed to clinical acuity. And then in addition, I think a very important point, which can't get lost here is we've been struggling with infliximab and adalimumab for a long time, especially infliximab. Do we need to use a second drug to make infliximab work better? Meaning, do we need to add a thiopurine or methotrexate, which is an immunomodulator, which increases the risk of infliximab substantially by adding another drug just to make the infliximab drug concentration stay higher? or to lower the, the likelihood of anti-drug antibodies? Well, my answer to that is we can get rid of these second drugs that we don't need them if we would just dose them right from the beginning. And I think for those high-risk groups, such as those that are under, let's say, the age of 21, 25, groups of patients where thiopurines proved to be uh, increased risk of, in young patients, hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma by using combination or even just non-hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma, we know is higher, uh, particularly in males, for example, who are on thiopurines and also our advancing age population above the age of 60, 65, if we could take high-risk patients away from needing a second drug to make the first drug work better, we would not only improve the outcomes of the, of the biologic and keep people on these drugs longer, we would also improve the safety profile of these therapies. And probably some of the biggest debate I have is I said, I know there's a lot of patients between the age of 25 and 60, and if I was one of them, which I do fall into that age category, I would want the approach where I don't need a second drug and just optimize the drug I'm on. And I think that is going to be really the most important, to me, piece of information to speak with listeners about and for them to hear that the research is not just about the at-risk population, but to me... It's about giving everybody the right dose at the right time uh, and making sure they're on the right drug. Thank you very much, Dr. Dubinsky, for a very interesting discussion on therapeutic drug monitoring. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's always a great opportunity to sort of bring what's happening in the field of therapeutic drug monitoring, you know, to all your listeners. And I think this is the way of the future, so it makes me happy. And I'm, I'm appreciative of you asking me to comment.